Warm welcome to all of you, regulars and visitors. Good to see you all. Beautiful, sunny morning. Those of you that are solar powered, like I am, it helps a great deal. Last week we read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, which is an account of the Ten Commandments spoken by the voice of God to all the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. These ten words, as they are called in other places in the writings of Moses, are a miracle of thought. There is nothing like them found in any other ancient literature. In fact, we don't see any statement of law even remotely close to it until about 2,500 years afterwards in Western Europe. And even then, the idea of lex rex, or law is king, or we call it the rule of law, could never have been imagined by men and it had its foundations in the law of God, the Ten Commandments. There are four things, or maybe I should say at least four things, that make the Ten Commandments unique. Number one, they were given a special name, the Ten Words. Number two, they were audibly spoken to all the people of Israel by the voice of God. Number three, they were chiseled into stone tablets by the finger of God. And number four, they were placed into the Ark of the Covenant and kept in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and eventually the Temple of God. But God did not stop with the Ten Commandments. He went on in the next chapters of Exodus, as well as further books, to lay out about 600 more laws for the nation of Israel. In a sense, these added laws were a further clarification or division of the Ten Commandments insofar as they were to be understood in the context of the nation of ancient Israel. In general, scholars have, uh, that have studied the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses have divided them into three main categories, ceremonial law, civil law, and canon law. Ceremonial law defines the religious practices of ancient Israel. These laws cover the priesthood, the sacrificial system, uh, the distinguishing between the clean and the unclean, the, the distinguishing between the holy and the profane. S the ceremonial law came to a distinct and complete end at the cross of Christ. These laws were a mere shadow of the atonement accomplished in Christ and once the substance had come, there was no more need for the shadow. This is why Christians today do not perform any animal sacrifices or hold to any of the other ceremonial laws. Civil law defines the subtleties and application of the Ten Commandments in society. No culture or society can exist without some sort of civil law. For ancient Israel, Moses laid out the precedent for how the law should be applied in society. Civil law was there, firstly, to determine guilt or innocence, and secondly, to, to, to prescribe appropriate punishment based on the severity of the crime. Christians today also recognize the need for civil law for a properly functioning society, acting as a hedge for those that would commit evil acts. 
but we would feel free to accept a change in the details and types of punishments, of course, so long as they are founded in godly ethics and morality. Canon law, the category in which we find the Ten Commandments, is eternal. The Ten Commandments are a concise and dignified statement which reflects the very moral nature of God. In Romans 3.31, Paul asks, Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not, he answers. On the contrary, we establish the law. The Christian, through faith, by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God, can love God and love his neighbor, which two commandments, Jesus tells us, hang all the law and the prophets. So let's go ahead and read our passage of scripture again this week, which uh, we'll just read the same passage, Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. But we are going to be paying special attention this morning to verses 1 through 11. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything else that is your neighbor's. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are of all people most blessed to have your word before us this morning. I pray that as we look into it and consider that which you have given to us this morning that you would help me to get out of the way and that your word would have preeminence this morning. I pray that your spirit would uh, open our eyes to the truth contained in your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to look today at the first four commandments called the vertical commandments. 
or we can call them vertical commandments. They take place in the first 11 verses of Exodus 20. Last week, we talked about the law of Moses in its broadest terms. When we read the first five books of the Bible, but particularly the last half of Exodus and all of Leviticus, we are given many laws. We divided them into three main parts, which I already mentioned, ceremonial, civil, and canon. This week, we will only be looking at the Ten Commandments, but we will divide them into two parts as well. It is almost universally recognized in both Jewish and Christian thought that the Ten Commandments can be divided into the first four commandments, we'll call them the vertical commandments, and the last six commandments, and we will call them the horizontal commandments. This is even alluded to, although not uh, really explicitly, by Jesus when he is having a conversation with a lawyer over in Matthew chapter 22. And we'll just read six verses there, 35 through 40. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So the first four commandments, which we will be looking at today, deal with man's vertical responsibilities, responsibilities to God. In some sense, I su suppose we could envision that these four commandments would make up the first stone tablet written on both sides. The final six commandments, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, deal with man's horizontal responsibilities, responsibilities to our fellow man. We might call them the second tablet written on both sides. Just as a quick aside, the reason I mentioned that the tablets would have been inscribed on both sides is the fact that this indicated in the ancient world a completed and unchangeable agreement. This is explicitly stated in Exodus chapter 32, verse 15. It says this, And Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hand. The tablets were written on both sides, on the one side and on the other. They were written. Nothing could be added to or removed from the covenant agreement when written on both sides. This idea appears again in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. The first verse of Revelation 5 reads like this, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, an unchangeable covenant. There is no doubt that the Apostle John is drawing the reader's attention to the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments in the chapter we're looking at today. The first tablet, the first four laws, outline the life of proper worship. It prescribes worship first in thought, which is the first two commandments, then in word, which is the third commandment, finally in conduct, which is the fourth commandment. 
The second tablet outlines the life or proper service to our fellow man. First in conduct, which is commandments 5, 6, 7, and 8. Then in word, commandment 9. And finally in thought, commandment 10. So let's stop and consider this for just a moment. Unlike every other code that the world has ever known, the Ten Commandments begin and end with the prescription of good thoughts and the prohibition of evil thoughts. No wonder Jesus said, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So having introduced our topic for today, let's consider the text. The first three verses describe the first commandment, which we will look at as the object of worship. God first brought the people into liberty. Then he gave them the law. Israel needed the law to know what true freedom looks like. True liberty is not simply being loosed from your bonds. True liberty is the freedom to know and to do the will of God. This is why God introduces himself as the Lord who has brought them out of bondage. And then he proceeds to give them the law. The first commandment answers the question, who should we worship? It says, you shall have no other gods before me. There are two meanings of the word before in English. There is before as in prior to or more important than. I will let my wife go before me in the line to get soup. That is not the meaning of the word before in the first commandment. That would suggest that the people were allowed to have other gods, but it's just that Jehovah must be the most important one. So the other meaning of the word before is in the presence of. This pulpit is before me. A per, as, as long as a person lives, he is to have no other gods in the presence of the one true God, Jehovah, God of Israel. For the Israelite, this was akin to a vow saying that to remain a true Israelite, he or she must worship the Lord God and him alone. To slide into idolatry was a betrayal of this vow and a breaking of the covenant. For you and I today, the worship of one God brings stability to every area of our life. Polytheism, or the worship of many gods, leads to a divided mind. The Bible speaks often of the perils of a divided mind. Jesus says in Luke 16, 13, No servant can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. James writes in his letter, a double-minded man is unstable 
in all his ways, not just his worship ways. Every area of his life will be affected. As Christians, we must always keep Christ before our faces in a posture of worship. If we fall into pride, we make a God of ourselves. If we fall into covetousness, we make a God of our appetites. Whatever is loved, feared, venerated, or depended upon more than God has become our idol, our small g God, and we have allowed our mind to be divided. As Christians, we have one object of worship, and we can say this to God day by day, you are my Lord, my King, and my God. You are the absolute sovereign of my life. I make no claim to myself other than that which you have already given me. You are the one to whom I surrender everything that I have, my life, my health, my wealth, my time, you name it, it's yours. At that point alone, our life is singular. And then every other blessing God may or may not choose to give falls into its rightful place. And if this is true personally, imagine what effect this would have corporately as a society. Society today has so many gods, it is no wonder decency and order are nowhere to be found. So the committed Christian believer must live the truth and proclaim the gospel at every opportunity. It is the power of the gospel that alone can vanquish the gods of money, power, comfort, or whatever else, and replace them with the one true God, the creator, the redeemer, Jesus Christ. Second commandment, verses four through six. In its most compact form, it reads, you shall not make your, for yourself a carved image. The second commandment answers the question, how should we worship? The first and second commandments are intimately linked. The first commandment tells us to have no other gods. The second tells us that we must not have any graven images. One way to think about this is that the first commandment addresses our inner life and the second commandment addresses how we conduct ourselves outwardly in order to worship properly. So even if you are claiming to worship the one true God, you must worship him in the way that he has prescribed. Possibly the best example of this difference is found just a few chapters on in Exodus. Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai receiving instructions from God and the people get impatient and they fall into horrific idolatry. Let's read Exodus 32 and the first six verses. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up, up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, 
Break off the golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Aaron formed this graven image, this golden calf. Then he called it the God that brought Israel out of Egypt, and he even called it the Lord, Jehovah, the holy name of God. Israel broke at least the first three commandments with the golden calf. But I think this story really illustrates to us the importance of the distinction between the first two commandments. God, the object of our worship, gets to prescribe how we approach him in the ordinances of our worship. We do not have license to proclaim that we are worshiping the one true God of Israel and then proceed on our own terms. There is one more aspect to consider about the second commandment before we move to the third. God is creative. And God has designed us to have the desire to create. Mankind creates beauty as a reflection of God's holiness. Nothing we will ever paint or write or sculpt or sing will ever measure up to the full beauty of God's holiness. The best we can do is to create beauty as a glimpse into the holiness of God. But to try and represent God himself with the works of our hands can only denigrate and detract from who God truly is. Can you imagine God creating the universe and then bowing down to worship it? It would be similarly ridiculous for us to bow down to the work of our hands. Any attempt to reduce God to a graven image of any kind, whether it be physical or mental, is an attempt to give ourselves some sort of control over God. That brings us to the third commandment, which describes the language of worship. That's verse 7. The third commandment says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The use of language is one of the things that is reflective of the fact that man is made in the image of God. There is no animal that uses words to express complex ideas and emotions or to express mathematical or even spiritual truths. To take the gift of language that God has given us, which reflects the very nature of God, and to use it lightly or even degenerately is a great evil. It seems that this one sin, that this is the one sin that seems to occur with little or no thought 
Things seem to blurt out of the mouth of man with so little thought that we can very easily forget the moral weight God places on our speech. This is why I think God adds to this command, God will not hold him guiltless who uses his name in vain. God will not hold him guiltless who breaks any of his commands, but the reminder is placed here because of the flippancy with which we often use our tongue and the firestorm our words can create. James says in his letter, even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how, pardon me, see how great a forest a little fire kindles? And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our God and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Then in Matthew chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, Jesus says this, A good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Consider for a moment the seriousness of what Jesus has said. Every idle word. That's any word that is not doing something productive and useful. That's a serious indictment. We must understand what it means to use the Lord's name in vain if we are to understand this commandment. Vanity is emptiness. To use the Lord's name in vain is to fail to consider the weightiness of the person behind the name. Anytime we make reference to the Lord God of Israel or his son Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit in a flippant or empty way, not recognizing of whom it is that we are speaking, we are using his name in vain. How many times have you seen OMG? Thousands and thousands of times. And it's using the Lord's name in an empty and flippant way. And that is to say nothing of using the Lord's name as a curse word. To replace a filthy word with the name of the holy God who created us and holds our very breath in his hand is even a step lower. When I am in the presence of someone, and I'm sure many of you feel the same, who uses the precious name of Jesus Christ as a curse word, 
I can feel those words scrape against my soul like rough sandpaper. Have you ever wondered why people don't use the name of Muhammad or Buddha or some other so-called deity as a curse word? I haven't heard it. There is something in the heart of unregenerate man that is in deep rebellion against the Lord. And that rebellion, even unacknowledged, comes out of the mouths of men that remain unregenerate. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If it's empty, then when you use the Lord's name, it will be empty. When we use the name of God trivially, tri trivially, we expose our heart's attitude toward God. Finally, recognizing the dignity and majesty of God allows me to recognize the dignity of my neighbor who is created in his image. This brings us to the fourth and final commandment we'll look at today, the time of worship. This is verses 8 through 11. The fourth commandment says in its starkest form, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Of all the Ten Commandments, this is the one that has been subject to the most controversy and even revision. Importantly, this is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in the New Testament, and there are good reasons for that. Because of this, we won't even come close to this morning to saying a fraction of what needs to be said about the Fourth Commandment. There are two extremes in understanding the Fourth Commandment. On one end, some have said <clears throat> that we must worship on the Sabbath, on Saturday, because a failure to do this is a great sin. One of the teachings of Ellen G. White, who was a co-founder of Seventh-day Adventism, says that Sunday worship is the mark of the beast. On the other end, some have said that we don't need to set aside any day as holy because we are no longer under the law. The church has generally rejected either extreme. The life and teachings of Jesus and the apostles don't seem to fit into either extreme. Just think of the number of times Jesus says, or Jesus in the Gospels provokes some kind of controversy because he's doing something on the Sabbath. In general, the church has said that the ceremonial rules of Sabbath keeping have somehow, in some sense, ceased at the cross. But the principle of setting aside one day in seven for the Lord goes back much further than the commandments of Moses all the way back, in fact, to creation, when God himself rested on the seventh day after his creation of the world and everything in it. <clears throat> the Christian has the immense privilege of being able to worship at all times. But God has asked us to set aside time for corporate worship each seventh day. Somebody said, I think it was James Coates, to watch church online and think that you are going to church is like watching a hockey game on TV and calling yourself 
a hockey player. Let me give you my thoughts on this in just a nutshell, because our time is growing short. These thoughts are underdeveloped, as I'm still trying to work them out in my own small mind, but I think there are the seeds of some truth in them. God, from eternity past, looked ahead to the cross of Christ and his resurrection from the dead. He knew that Jesus would die Friday afternoon, rise again Sunday morning, and lay in the tomb all day Saturday after he accomplished his recreative work of atonement by his agonizing crucifixion for the sins of all mankind, including mine and including yours. So, to teach us this great truth and to point ahead to Christ's redemptive work, God commanded Sabbath rest for Israel. When the reality of that prophetic message of Sabbath rest was accomplished in Christ at his resurrection from the dead, Sabbath law was entirely fulfilled and is no longer a requirement for the Christian. But God also in his providence knew that men needed a rhythmic pattern of rest from work to be healthy and productive. He also knew that we are forgetful, talked about that in Sunday school, and that we need to gather with other members of the body of Christ for mutual edification, building one another, one another up in faith, obedience, and the hearing of God's word in a weekly rhythm. So God gently led the early Christians to set aside not the Sabbath, as it was now completely fulfilled in the resurrection, but the Lord's Day, Resurrection Day, Sunday, to rest from our regular duties of labor and to engage in holy spiritual work, doing good and glorifying Christ and encouraging others. There you have it, my thoughts on the topic in seed form, not well developed or refined, but faithful, I think, to scripture. On to our final thought for this message. Something I had never before seen in the fourth commandment struck me this week. If I were to ask you to sum up the fourth commandment, what, what, what a person is commanded to do in the fourth commandment, in what, one word, what would you say? On the Sabbath, we must rest. If we were to sum up the fourth commandment, we would sum it up, I think, with that word. I've always thought that the fourth commandment was a commandment to rest, but if we read it carefully, it is also a commandment to work. Exodus 20, verse 9 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. The Sabbath command has two imperatives, the command to rest and the command to work. This is often missed. I certainly missed it. Work is given great dignity by God. God knows we need to work for our physical health, for our mental health, for our financial health, and for our spiritual health. In nearly every human culture that has ever existed, work is for inferior people 
the lower classes, the slaves. This in itself reveals the divine origin of the Mosaic law. There is nothing even close to this in any other law code ever written. There is an interesting historical phenomenon, it has, a, it has a name. It's called the Protestant work ethic, which has single-handedly produced the wealth enjoyed by Western nations today. It is rooted in the idea that for the Christian, every work, even vocational work, is a work to be done unto the Lord. And it is rooted in the fourth commandment. If you've been paying attention at all to what's been happening in our country lately, you know that we are facing difficult times ahead. One of the most important things you can do as a Christian to help your family and your community and your country is to obey the fourth commandment. Work hard and rest hard. I heard a pastor preach a sermon once on this commandment decades ago. I don't even remember who it was, but I remember something he said. Never forgotten it. I don't think I ever will. He said this, if you as a believer are only working 40 hours a week, you are semi-retired. <laughs> Josiah, yeah. <laughs> and he's right. If you are only working 40 hours a week, you are semi-retired. And he's absolutely right. Christians in this church and other churches like it should lead the way in instructing our land by putting our hand to the plow, so to speak. Find someone that needs help and work for them, especially if you are volunteering. Find something ugly and make it beautiful. Everything your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. Delight in the blessing of work. How many times have we gone to work, people mumbling and complaining, who do not want to be here in the bosses? He gets to take any time off that he wants. No, 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 on and on it goes. And it's contagious, isn't it? Ed and I talked about it a little bit this morning. It's contagious. We, we just fall into that trap. As Christians, we should not fall into that trap. We should be so thankful that God has given us the opportunity to work and the health to work. We should be so thankful that he has given us things that are maybe ugly and chaotic. And he's given us the opportunity to create something beautiful. To bring order from something that is orderless. I think of uh, ladies that knit. So you have this ball of yarn. And they knit and they and they tie the knots and they tie the knots and they tie the knots. And at the end of it, they've created something beautiful. They have taken chaos and put it into order. And therefore, they have created a little glimpse into the holiness of God. That's the fourth commandment. Just work. Work. Take ugly things and make them beautiful. Take things that are disordered and put them in order. That's reflecting the character and the holiness of God. And 40 hours a week is semi-retired. 
This is the final commandment of the four vertical laws of the Ten Commandments. When we worship the Lord, let us do so in our thoughts toward the one true God, the only legitimate object of worship. Let us worship him in our deeds, the way he has asked, not in our own strength and wisdom. Let us worship him in our words, speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, in gravity and truth, but also in joy. Let us worship him at all times, whether we are at work or at rest, so that all we do as his people brings glory to his name and brings healing and beauty to our homes and to our societies and to our country through simple obedience by faith in Christ. If each person hearing this message did these four simple things, in one year, we would not recognize our homes. We would not recognize our societies and we would not recognize our country as God spreads the garden of his kingdom into the weeds and the thorns of this present world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that it is true. And in every aspect, it brings us tremendous blessing. As Christians, we are all people most blessed. We have your word in front of us. We have this place that we gather with other like-minded believers. We have the opportunity to worship in every possible way with our thoughts and our hands, our minds. Father, we ask that it is through Christ, by the Spirit of God, that we would do these things in a way that is pleasing to you by faith. For without faith, it is impossible to please God. As we go from this place, let us remember a few of the principles that we have learned from your word this morning and not just plant them in our brains to sit there and be dwelt upon, but that they would take root and flow out to our fingers and our feet, that we would, by your strength, by your grace, produce beauty where there was ugliness and, and order where there is chaos, that we might reflect just a little glimpse of your holiness to this world. We thank you for these opportunities in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.